Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 137. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I am recording this episode on January 2nd, 2024. Happy New Year in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. In podcast time, we've been knocking around the northeast of today's United States for just about two years, starting with the Popham Colony episodes back in December 2021. The recent high water mark, as it were, is 1647 or so, with the recovery of Maryland by the Calverts after the plundering time. We're not entirely caught up to that date, however. We need to get back to see what happened in New Sweden since its first year in the late 1630s, and the New Haven colony, which extended its writ to New York, New Jersey, Delaware, and Pennsylvania, also deserves a couple of episodes. The 1640s to the 1660s are something of a lost period in the teaching of the history of the Americans, in the sense that most histories blow through them to get to King Philip's War in New England and 1675, and maybe Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia in 1676. Never fear, those middle decades of the 17th century are not lost to us. All of that said, in the 70-plus timeline episodes since Martin Pring's expedition of 1603 and Champlain's St. Croix settlement in Maine, we've talked about English, Dutch, and French settlement and exploration in today's United States, but always in bits and pieces, or mostly in bits and pieces. It's been a while since we've looked at the spread of European populations in the Northeast at altitude. Even I'm getting confused. So in this episode, we'll do our best to bring it all together. You know the big ones. The Mayflower landed at Patuxet, Plymouth in late 1620. The Pilgrims stayed small and insular, but poked into Maine with a fur trading post near Penobscot. The non-separated Puritans began to arrive at Massachusetts Bay in 1628, first at Salem and vicinity and then in Charlestown. The Dutch were earlier. They established Fort Nassau near Albany in 1614, renaming it Fort Orange in 1623. They settled at the mouth of the Hudson River in 1623, first on Governor's Island and then on Manhattan the next year. Easy peasy. If you didn't know that, you would have flunked this podcast if it were school. Fortunately, there are no tests. Also in 1623, the Dutch built a trading post on the east bank of the South River, their term for the Delaware, at the site of today's Gloucester, New Jersey. This they also named Fort Nassau, having released that name from the fort up the Hudson. They also built a trading post they named Fort Wilhelmus on Burlington Island, which sits in the river just north of today's Burlington, New Jersey. These would be the first European settlements in the future Garden State. They would fail to pay the usual protection to the locals, and in this respect, would not be the last New Jerseyans to make that mistake. In 1630, the Winthrop fleet arrived and spread itself around the Massachusetts Bay, founding Boston, Watertown, Medford, Roxbury, and Dorchester. Small settlements popped up in Portsmouth and Saco, Maine. These were all tiny places, notable more because they were early than inherently important. 
begging perhaps offended small town New Englanders for a little forgiveness on that one. Anywho, in some cases, they were founded for economic expediency. Bases for fishing and drying cod or trading for fur. In other cases, people were just getting away from the Puritans, whether voluntarily or not. Also in 1630, just as the Winthrop fleet was arriving at the mouth of the Charles River, the Dutch granted a patent for the west bank of the North River, that would be the Hudson to you and me, to Michael Paw, an important merchant of Amsterdam and a director of the Dutch West India Company. Paw named the place Pavonia. Since I cannot improve on it, let's quote from the Wikipedia entry with gratitude to the volunteers who edit that fine publication. Quote, Pavonia is the Latinized form of Paw's surname, which means peacock. As was required, Paw purchased the land from the indigenous population, although the concept of ownership differed significantly for the parties involved. Trila Nyape sold, scare quotes there, the land for 80 fathoms of wampum, 20 fathoms of cloth, 12 kettles, 6 guns, 2 blankets, 1 double kettle, and half a barrel of beer. These transactions, dated July 12, 1630 and November 22, 1630, represent the earliest known conveyance for the area. On August 10, 1630, Paw obtained a deed for Staten Island, leading some historians to consider Staten Island to be part of Pavonia. The area encompassed by Paw's holdings on Bergen Neck likely included the eight miles of shoreline on each of the Hudson and Hackensack rivers from Bergen Point to today's Bergen County line. His agent set up a small trading post and ferry slip on the tidal island that still bears his anglicized name, Paulus Hook. He operated an intermittent ferry and traded with the local Anyape population. By 1630, a plantation worked by African slaves had been set up. Paw, however, failed to fulfill the condition of establishing a community of at least 50 permanent settlers and was required to resell his speculative acquisition back to the company. They commissioned construction of a homestead at, this one's a mouthful, Gemoin Apin, now roughly the Liberty Science Center, for their representative Jan Everson Boot during 1633. During 1634, a homestead was built at Ahasimus, now downtown Jersey City, for Cornelius Hendrickson van Voorst, whose later descendants would play a prominent role in the development of Jersey City. Abraham Isaacson Verplank received a land patent for Paulus Hook on May 1, 1638. A small farm went up at Kewen Punt. The leasehold of Ert von Putin at Hoboc, Hoboken was the site of North America's first brewery. Back to me. Since beer had been brewed in New England before 1638, it was already a tavern in Cambridge, as we know from the Hutchinson controversy, and there was that half-barrel traded to those Indians. I suspect this last claim turns on the definition of brewery. Regardless, the sentimentalist in me hopes that somebody starts a craft brewery in Hoboken called Van Putten. Get at it. 
1631, the Dutch planted a settlement at the mouth of the Delaware on Cape Henlopen at the site of today's Lewis, Delaware. It did not go well. A ship with some 28 settlers set sail from Holland on December 12, 1630, under the command of David Pietersen de Vries. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember de Vries, who 14 years later would own Staten Island and vigorously protest Willem Kieft's decision to wage war on the tribes around Manhattan. De Vries was both an accomplished seaman and had been a master of artillery for the Netherlands. We do not know precisely when he arrived at Cape Henlopen, but it must have been in the late winter of 1631. There he built a stronghouse he called Fort Opland, surrounded by a palisade. The small settlement took the name Zwanendal, or Valley of the Swans. He erected the Arms of Holland, painted on a tin plate. Then de Vries left. That would turn out to be a good decision. Now let's go to Hampton L. Carson, who wrote an article called Dutch and Swedish Settlements on the Delaware in 1909 for the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. Quote, On his return two years later, he found his colony exterminated by the Indians. The whitened bones of men and animals in the midst of charred ruins greeted his saddened gaze. A chief had wanted an ornament for a pipe, and in ignorance of the affront had seized on the emblem of Holland. On complaint by the settlers, the offender had been slain by his own people, but his friends had avenged him by a general massacre. Valley of the Swans, indeed. Bernard Balin, in his aptly titled book, The Barbarous Years, describes the destruction of Zwanendal more evocatively, quote, When in early December 1632, De Vries arrived on the Delaware to salvage what he could, he discovered and recorded a grim scene. The entire colony, even a guard dog, had been massacred. The fort had been burned, and the skulls and bones of our people and the heads of the horses and cows were lying about here and there. Through an interpreter, de Vries learned that the settlers had erected a column topped by a metal plaque bearing the arms of the United Provinces. One of the chiefs innocently stole, culturally generous phrasing on Balin's part, the plaque to make tobacco pipes, which so enraged the Dutch commander that other Indians, fearing reprisals, killed the culprit and produced his head or scalp as proof. This set up a bloody reaction on the part of the murdered chief's friends who vowed revenge. They waited until all but two of the settlers were working in the fields, then under pretense of barter, entered the fort, murdered the two men with axe blows, riddled the guard dog with arrows, 25 of them according to de Vries's account, and went after the people in the field, killing them one after another. One boy, hidden in deep grass, escaped. Back to me. Unfortunately, in a quick look, I was able to find nothing of that boy's eventual fate. Was he ruined by the trauma, or did he resiliently recover from it? 
Either way, that would be an interesting story. After taking in the horror of Zvanendal, De Vries picked his way up the Delaware and came to Fort Nassau at Burlington, where the Dutch had been for nine years. He found that the Dutch had now abandoned it and had been occupied by Indians. They told De Vries of the murder of an English crew which had come into the vicinity in a ship's boat, perhaps up from Virginia. He saw Indians shuffling around in English jackets, which struck him as fairly probative evidence of their guilt. In 1633, both the Dutch and the English converged on the Connecticut River, which was important for two reasons. You've heard this before, but worth repeating. First, it was a critical trading route for furs from the north, so control of it meant better product on better terms. Second, the Connecticut River Valley is the most fertile land in the region, especially from the point of view of New Englanders along the Atlantic coast. Not only was it good for growing corn, remember none of these people had seen the soil in Iowa, but the Indians had already cultivated tobacco. The Connecticut River Valley remains tobacco country, which those of you who have ever bought a cigar promoting its Connecticut wrapper already know. The first reported exports of tobacco from Connecticut did not come until 1700, although presumably it was grown by Europeans for local use long before then. The aforementioned Connecticut wrapper was not developed until the 1820s. Anyway, the Dutch built Fort Hope at the site of Hartford, and both the Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth colonies established settlements on either side nearby, which irritated the Dutch no end. In 1634, the Ark and the Dove arrived at St. Mary's City, southeast of today's Washington. Nuff said. In 1635, the Bay Colony expanded to Concord, 15 miles northwest of Boston and famous for the first fighting of the American Revolution 140 years later. Then in 1636, the Bay founded Springfield on the Connecticut River, 85 miles west of Boston. His leader was William Pynchon, one of the more interesting figures in the first 40 years of New England's settlement. Pynchon was a fur trader and a prolific writer, not a combination you see every day, known for his iconoclastic ideas and would go on to write a critique of Puritanism, which would become the first banned book in New England. He was also the ancestor of the novelist Thomas Pynchon, who some believe is one of the greatest American novelists of all time. I may do an episode on Pynchon the Elder, depending on whether I can get through the biography of him that is now heading toward my house via the miracle of Amazon Prime. Anyway, Springfield was perfectly positioned. Not only did it leapfrog the other trading posts along the Connecticut River to the south, but there were already established Indian paths from the site of Springfield east to Boston and west to Albany, arguably the two most important ports north of the Chesapeake in the mid-1630s. That same year, Roger Williams founded Providence. You all know that story in great detail. And in 1638, Anne Hutchinson and her followers landed at Portsmouth on Aquidneck Island. As it happened, 1638 was a big year for new settlements. The Kalmar Nickel and the Gripen arrived on the Delaware, and the Swedes established Fort Christina at Wilmington and settled on the east bank at today's aptly named Swedesboro, 
We covered that around 10 episodes back in the founding of New Sweden. We shall return to New Sweden where all sorts of weird stuff would transpire in the 1640s and 50s, probably in the next couple of months. More importantly, or at least more durably, the colony of New Haven was established at Quinnipiac, today's New Haven, in early 1638. Depending, as always, on my muse and the speed with which I can get through the 400-page history of New Haven sitting on my desks, not a book I ever thought I would read, I expect to do a couple of episodes on the New Haven colony. Until then, the short introduction from the Wikipedia entry will have to suffice. Quote, The New Haven colony was a small English colony in Connecticut from 1638 to 1664, with outposts in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. In 1637, a group of London merchants and their families moved to Boston with the intention of creating a new settlement. The leaders were John Davenport, a Puritan minister, and Theophilus Eaton, a wealthy merchant who brought 3,000 pounds to the venture. Both had experience in fitting out vessels for the Massachusetts Bay Company. The two ships that they chartered arrived in Boston on June 26, 1637. They learned about the area around the Quinnipiac River from militia engaged in the Pequot War, so Eaton set sail to view the area in late August. The site seemed ideal for trade, with a good port lying between Boston and the Dutch city of New Amsterdam on Manhattan, and good access to the furs of the Connecticut River Valley settlements of Hartford and Springfield. Eaton returned to Boston, leaving seven men to remain through the winter and make preparations for the arrival of the rest of the company. The main body of settlers landed on April 14, 1638, numbering about 250, with the addition of some from Massachusetts. A number of the early dwellings were caves or cellars, partly underground and carved into hillsides. Back to me. Then, as now, New Haven was not nearly as quaint as Hobbiton, even if the early residents also lived in holes. In 1639, the Hutchinson refugees at Portsmouth and Aquidnick split apart over governance and ego, and William Coddington and John Coggeshall, among others, repaired to the southern end of the island and founded the town of Newport. Coddington, in particular, had an eye for business. He was reputed to be the richest person in Boston during his years there, and Newport quickly surpassed both Portsmouth and Providence to become the most important town in Rhode Island. Starting in the late 1630s, Massachusetts founded new towns almost every year. The Puritan Great Migration would slow to a trickle in the early 1640s with the rise of Puritan power in England and the English Civil War. But Puritan families were so fertile, and New England was so fundamentally healthy, that the population continued to grow quickly. Eventually, the English, with their huge demographic advantage and constant flow of theological cranks, would move into Long Island and begin to bump up against the Dutch. Bernard Balin describes the settlement of Long Island, quote, this one's a bit long, The migration of the English from the east and north, which would greatly shape New Netherland's population history, had been in motion since 1639, when an agent of the Earl of Stirling, who claimed possession of the whole of Long Island, began to entice New Englanders to move south and settle on the island. 
He turned first to a disgruntled group in Lynn, Massachusetts, who felt sufficiently straightened in their circumstances to look for resettlement and brought them to the site of the later Manhasset, a mere 20 miles from New Amsterdam. Expelled from there by a troop of Dutch soldiers, they moved off 100 miles to the far eastern tip of the island, Montauk Point, and then, disappointed with that bleak spot, pause here and say that the medium house price in Montauk today is $3 million, so it's gotten somewhat less bleak in the intervening centuries, settled finally at a place they called Southampton on the southern ocean side of the island, still far from any Dutch settlements. There, on an isolated plot eight miles square fronting the sea, 30 miles west of Montauk, they formed a self-governing New England town corporation and brought in a newly arrived preacher, Abraham Pearson, to organize a church society. The community, drawn from various parts of England as distant from each other as Buckinghamshire and Yorkshire, quickly flourished. It soon had 40 families, perhaps 100 souls, who quickly developed bitter disputes on church polity. Within four years, Pearson, once a scholar at Trinity College, Cambridge, was so deeply disappointed in the community's loose ties of church and state that he felt impelled to move once again back across the Sound north to the stricter Connecticut town of New Haven. But even the more rigorous devotional community disappointed him, and he gathered his remaining adherents and wandered south once more to found what became Newark, New Jersey in 1666. Pearson's and the Lynn community's discontent in matters of religion and available land and their extraordinary mobility were typical of the impulses that brought hundreds of New Englanders south into Dutch territory. Their comings and goings made Long Island, once sparsely settled by Indians, a world in constant motion. Thus, while Southampton was being peopled from Lynn, a contingent from New Haven, led by the proto-Presbyterian Reverend John Youngs, once of Southwald, Suffolk, England, settled Southhold, far out on the island's north shore, where he established friendly relations with the Indians. Dissidents from the recently founded Southampton joined with immigrants from southern England to establish East Hampton, a few miles further to the east. An English army officer, Lion Gardner, we saw him in our episodes on the Pequot War, bought and settled the island that bears his name, nestled in the eastern bay of Long Island, while a group of Barbados merchants set up a trading emporium on nearby Shelter Island. The drift of the English south to Long Island, freed servants, religious dissidents, and farmers feeling relatively deprived in their land holdings at the edge of a limitless continent, continued through the 1640s and 50s, spreading steadily west on the island into closer and closer proximity to the Dutch settlements that were expanding east from Manhattan. New Dutch villages on the western end of Long Island, Flatbush, Brooklyn, B-R-E-U-K-L-E-N, New Amsfort, later Flatlands, were thought of as protective barriers against English encroachment from the east. These Dutchmen soon found themselves close neighbors of some of the most radical English exiles. 
It was in 1642 that the fiercely independent Reverend Francis Doughty appeared, expelled from Massachusetts for his offensive ideas on baptism, to settle Maspeth, which is the later new town would develop what has been described as a genuine cultural pluralism. Similarly, John Throckmorton, a grocer from Norwich, England, who followed Roger Williams into exile in Rhode Island, broke off from even that utterly permissive world to settle what would be named Throg's Neck, a spit of the mainland jutting into the sound 12 miles from New Amsterdam. Back to me. Throckmorton's closest neighbor was Anne Hutchinson and her family. Remember, they had moved there from Aquidneck Island when the Puritans from Massachusetts came down and said they were going to take over Rhode Island. Long-standing and attentive listeners know that Hutchinson would die in an Indian attack during Keefe's War. Throckmorton himself would survive a similar attack about the same time, but would abandon Throg's neck and return to Rhode Island in 1643. He would live until 1684 and die in New Jersey at the age of 83. That's pretty much the lay of the land east of the Hudson through the 1640s, with some puts and takes. The Dutch and English would enter into a treaty at Hartford in 1650 that bisected Long Island with a line running south from the western side of Oyster Bay. It would remain in practice, if not technically, in force, insofar as the English government did not ratify it, until the English conquered New Netherland in 1664. We'll close with an overview of the settlement of the Delaware River and environs through the mid-1650s, when the Dutch, under Peter Stuyvesant, would wrest control back from the Swedes. Before that would happen, though, the Dutch and the Swedes would team up to kick out two English settlements that tried to set up on that river about 1640. Robert Cogswell, from New Haven Colony, led a group to settle on the eastern shore at the mouth of Salem River. The other, a group from Virginia, sailed past the Swedes at Fort Christina and started a settlement on the Schuylkill River, which flows into the Delaware between Philadelphia and its international airport. They were both driven off and their settlements, such as they were, were destroyed by a Dutch expedition from New Amsterdam with an assist from Swedes marching out of Fort Christina. In 1643, New Sweden received a new governor, Johann Prince, will occupy us in the next episode we do on that colony. Prince set up his own capital on Tinicum Island, which is now a long, skinny affair in the middle of the Delaware just across from Philadelphia International Airport. He named it New Guttenberg and built, quote, a stately palace of bricks brought all the way from Stockholm. He also built a fort at the mouth of the Salem River, presumably near the site of the ejected English of New Haven, and installed eight brass cannon. The fort, called Elsingborg, compelled ships ascending the river to lower their colors and secure a hall pass before they headed north. Under Prince's more than 10 years in charge, the Swedes spread along both banks of the river. There were small groups of families at Upland, now Chester, Pennsylvania, Maniunk, a bit up the Schuylkill near Germantown, which Hampton Carson described as a handsome little fort of hickory logs. How he would know that, I don't know. Wickacoa, which is now Passiunk Square in Philadelphia, and Shackamaxon, which is now the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. 
There were others, single block houses and such. I found a map that sets them all out in great detail, and we'll put that up in the episode notes. It won't show up on the podcast apps, the mobile apps, but you'll be able to see it on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. The Swedes were expanding in territory claimed by both the Dutch and the English, countries that were all, for the time being, at peace with each other in Europe and committed to the Protestant side in the Great War then being waged on the continent. They would not, therefore, actually come to blows over the Delaware River, as important as it was to the very lucrative trade in beaver fur, at least until the Second Anglo-Dutch War in 1665. They would, however, harass each other and roust settlements that offended their claims. The Dutch and the Swedes had teamed up to kick out the English. So it also was, for example, that in 1648, the Dutch built a fort at a place called Beaver's Reed, which was on the west bank of the Delaware, a bit east of Temple University, if I'm looking at the maps right. The Swedes under Prince responded by building a blockhouse right next to the Dutch in such a way that it obstructed their view of the main approach. They were irritated. Everybody, it seemed, was acting like a nickname for Richard. Family podcast, etc., etc. But essentially, no blood was shed. There is more that might be said about all of this, but then I'd be spoiling whatever episodes we do on New Sweden, and we don't want to do that. This is therefore a great place to stop right now. I hope this episode's given you a good mental picture of the spread of the European population north of the Chesapeake during the first 30 or 40 years after the Dutch and English planted their flags in the region. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X in the Facebook page for podcast for my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time. <laughs>